We're continuing in 1 Peter chapter 1 as we've been working our way through, line by line, through this chapter in 1 Peter. And I would invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter 1, and I'll begin this morning by reading our passage for us. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 22, it says this, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. In A.D. 252, a great plague ravaged Alexandria, Egypt. At the first appearance of illness, the heathen unbelievers in the city drove those who were infected with the plague away from them. They threw their friends half dead into the streets and left their dead unburied. However, the Christians at this time did not treat each other this way. In fact, Dionysius, who was a bishop in Alexandria at this time, says this, quote, The Christians, in the abundance of their brotherly love, did not spare themselves, but mutually attending each other, they would visit the sick without fear and ministering to each other for the sake of Christ, cheerfully gave up their lives with them. Many died after their care had restored others to health. Many who took the bodies of their Christian brethren into their hands and bosoms and closed their eyes and buried them with every mark of attention soon followed them in death. End quote. What a contrast to the heathen world around them who left their friends and their family members out in the streets to die. These believers in Alexandria at the time had a brotherly love for one another. A love for one another that was so deep that it even cost some of them their own life. Because they loved them. And they cared for them. And as Peter continues his letter here in chapter 1, we see Peter's command for these persecuted believers that he's writing to, to love one another. To love one another with the same kind of brotherly love. Now as we have seen, Peter's been commanding these persecuted believers to fix their hope upon Christ 
and to live holy lives and to live their lives in fear of God rather than having a fear of man. And why would Peter have to remind these believers of this? Well, think about what persecution does. Think about what persecution does. When things are difficult and the world is against you, it's easy to lose hope, right? And so Peter has to command them to have hope. You must continue to have hope. It can be easy just to give up and to live for self rather than for Christ in the midst of persecution. And it can be easy to begin to fear the people around you who are persecuting you rather than having a fear of God and doing what is right. And Peter knows this to be true. In fact, isn't this what happened to Peter himself? You remember when Christ was arrested? And Peter went to follow? To follow Christ to see what they would do with him? And a girl comes up to Peter around the fire and says, You were with him. And what does Peter do? He denies it. I wasn't with him. In fact, Peter even denies knowing Christ. He says, I don't even know that man. He denies Jesus. And so Peter knows the pressures that come when persecution comes. He's experienced it himself. He knows the temptations and what believers face when the heat is turned up. And so he writes to these persecuted believers essentially to say, don't do what I did. Don't do it. But have hope and live in holiness and fear God rather than fearing man. But now here in our passage, he writes to exhort them to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, notice what he says at the end of verse 22. He says, fervently love one another from the heart. That's the command. That's the imperative in this passage here. And this is the exhortation to these persecuted believers to love one another. One commentator writes, the exhortation to love one another is especially timely for a people undergoing persecution because it is well known that under conditions of hardship, trivial disagreements take on gigantic proportions. When the heat is turned up, when the pressures come, when the persecution comes, under conditions of hardship, trivial disagreements take on gigantic proportions. And so Peter has to write to these believers and exhort them to love one another. Now, let me ask you, 
Is there a difference between the love that believers have for one another and the love that neighbors have for one another? Is there a difference between the love that believers have for one another and the love that neighbors have for one another? Scripture says there is. There is. In fact, notice in verse 22, Peter says, for a sincere love of the brethren. You see that there? For a sincere love of the brethren. That word love there in the Greek is the word Philadelphia. Philadelphia. And this word means brotherly love. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. That's why it's called that. Brotherly love or affectionate love is what that is. One commentator says brotherly love is most often exhibited in a close friendship. Best friends will display this generous and affectionate love for each other as each seeks to make the other happy. It's a love that involves feeling and warmth and affection toward one another. Philadelphia was used in secular Greek of the mutual love of natural brothers and sisters in a family. But in the New Testament, it is always used of affection for those who are spiritual brothers and sisters in the faith. Did you get that? In the New Testament, this word Philadelphia is always used of affection for those who are spiritual brothers and sisters in the faith. You often see it also as phileo. It's a phileo type of love. Now, are we called to love our neighbors? Yes, we are. But that word for love is agape love, not phileo love. It's agape love. What is agape love? Agape love is sacrificial love. It's a love that desires the highest good for the one loved, even at the expense of self. And we as believers are to have this kind of love for each other as well. We are to have both phileo love and agape love for each other. But it's this Philadelphia kind of love, this brotherly love that the Bible uses only for those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a special kind of love. It's a unique kind of love. And Peter, in our passage, he uses both words for love. We are to have a Philadelphia love for each other and an agape love for each other. A brotherly love and a sacrificial love for each other in the church. That is, we are to love each other as family. With warmth and affection for one another. And we are to love each other sacrificially, seeking the highest good for each other, even at the expense of self. That's what we're called to do. And as we look at these four verses in 1 Peter, we're going to see how this love manifests itself in the body of Christ and why we are to have this love for one another. 
And we're going to do this by looking at four different points. Four different points. The first point we will call the enablement of our love. The enablement of our love. Notice again in verse 22, at the beginning of verse 22, what Peter says there. He says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your soul for a sincere love of the brethren. Now, the Bible is clear that unbelievers are incapable of demonstrating a genuine love. Did you get that? Unbelievers are incapable of demonstrating a genuine love. Listen to what Jesus told the Jews in John 5.42. He says, but I know you, these are unbelieving Jews, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. You don't have it. And that word for love that Jesus uses there is agape love, sacrificial love. And unbelievers are incapable of demonstrating this genuine love. Why? Because they aren't attached to the source of this love. What is the source of agape love? Or I should say, who is the source of this agape love? God is the source of this love. In fact, listen to 1 John 4, 7 and 8. John tells us this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is the source of that agape love. And because of our fallen nature, this kind of love does not come naturally to us. Unbelievers are not connected to the source of agape love. And so therefore, they are not able to have agape love, true sacrificial love for others. In fact, they are incapable of producing this kind of love. But if we are to have this kind of love in us, it can only come from the source of agape love, who is God Himself. And as believers, you and I have this kind of love. How do we know? Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5.5. He says, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We have the love of God that's been poured out into our hearts. What about unbelievers? They don't. They don't have the Holy Spirit who has poured out agape love into us as believers. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We now have the Spirit of God within us and are now capable of love because we have the Spirit of God within us. In fact, 
What is at the beginning of the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5? Love. It's a fruit of the what? Spirit. That's love. Agape love. And when did this enablement or capability to genuinely love happen in our lives? Notice again what Peter says there in verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls. When did that enablement happen? When your soul was purified. When your soul was purified. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the moment of your regeneration. The moment that God regenerated you. Because remember, that's how it happens. I didn't walk an aisle to get saved, raise my hand to get saved, say some prayer to get saved. No, God regenerated me. And then I was able to respond with repentance and faith to what God has done in my heart. Regeneration. And at the moment of regeneration, your soul was purified. Your sins were forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, God has removed all of your sins away. Christ made the payment at the cross. And He canceled our debt of sin. It's gone. Which means our heart is purified. This, in fact, is the promise of the new covenant given in Ezekiel 36. Listen to what God says in Ezekiel 36, 25. It says this, Then I will sprinkle water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That is the new covenant. That is the new covenant. And God says there that he will cleanse you from all of your filthiness. That's the promise of the new covenant. That's what God has done for us. He's cleansed us from all of our filthiness. He says he will give you a new heart. God has taken your heart of stone that rejected Him and given you a heart of flesh that now loves Him. But God did that work in you. He did it. And He will put His Spirit within us. And that's what He's done for all who have repented of their sin and put their faith in Christ. All believers have now have the Spirit of God living within us so that we are now enabled to live out what God commands us to live out. And when did all this happen? It happened at our regeneration. At the moment of our regeneration. And because we have been purified and now have His Spirit within us, we are now able to truly love. To sacrificially love. And how did that experience of purification become operative in your life? Notice what Peter says there. Peter tells us, in obedience to the truth. Or another way we could say this is, by obedience to the truth. That is, when you obeyed the truth. 
That is when it became operative in your life. That is when you were then enabled to truly have genuine agape love in your life. When you obeyed the truth. Now what does this mean? Is Peter talking about works righteousness here? When he talks about obedience? Of course not. We know that. No, that phrase, obedience to the truth, is the response that we had when we heard the gospel message. Obedience to the truth is another way to say when you placed your faith in Christ. You were regenerated and then you repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ. You obeyed the truth. When you heard the good news of the gospel and repented and placed your faith in Christ. That's what Peter is talking about when he says obedience to the truth. But you see, you can't separate obedience and faith. You can't separate them. They go together. Obedience to the truth. True faith is obedient faith. True faith is obedient faith. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses the phrase obedience of faith twice in the book of Romans. What does he mean by that? The same thing that Peter means. The time when you obeyed the gospel and put your faith in Christ. Think about it. When the truth was given to you in the gospel message, what did you do when you heard the message? You obeyed it. You obeyed it. You submitted to it when you repented of your sin and trusted in Christ to save you. Someone came and preached the gospel to you and said, you must repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ in order to be saved. And you said, yes, I will do that. Now, how were you able to do that? Because your heart was first regenerated. And it all happens in that moment. Because God regenerated your heart and made you, enabled you now to repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ. But you submitted to the gospel in obedience to the gospel. You said, yes, I will obey it. I will do exactly what you right now are commanding me to do. I'll do it. And you did it. And you were saved. As one commentator says, souls are not purified when one submits to false teaching or deceitful doctrines. But souls are purified when one submits to the gospel, to the message of the gospel. We know that souls are purified when one submits to the gospel message and obeys it through repentance and faith. And that's what we did. The moment that that happened in your life was the moment that you were then enabled to truly love with a genuine biblical love because God radically changed your heart. He did that work. And He enabled you then to love with genuine biblical love. Because it was at that moment then that you were connected to the source of love. 
The moment that you were regenerated is the moment now that you are connected to God who is the source of love. Where before you were separated from Him in your sins. And because at that moment of regeneration you are now connected with the source of love, you are then able to truly love. Before, you weren't connected. But now as a believer, you are connected and you have God's Spirit inside of you enabling you to love with agape love. And so that is the enablement of our love. Let's look at our second point, point number two, what we'll call the manner of our love. The manner of our love. Notice again the middle of verse 22 where Peter says, for a sincere love of the brethren. For a sincere love of the brethren. This here is one of the end goals of the purification that God did in your heart through the gospel message. This is one of the end goals. The end goals of that that purification that God did in your heart. What is that goal? Notice what he says there. A sincere love of the brethren. That is a Philadelphia love. A brotherly love. Again, that's the word that is used there. That Peter uses. For a sincere love. Philadelphia. Love of the brethren. This is an agape love that Peter's talking about. This is Philadelphia love. A love that is used only of spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. This here is the love that the church is to have for each other. Now, notice that word sincere. See that there? That word sincere. That word there means unhypocritical or genuine. Unhypocritical or genuine. The underlying root word in the Greek for sincere has the picture of an ancient actor who wore a mask to represent some fictitious character. It's playing a pretend part. That's the root of that word. But Peter is saying here, this brotherly love that you are to have for each other is not supposed to be a pretend kind of love. Oh, I love you, brother. But then you see your brother in need. And you don't meet that need. You don't seek to meet that need. That's hypocritical love. And Peter knows that this kind of false affection for believers can even become common among the church. He knows that there is a danger of pretending to have a love for the brethren when it's actually truly not there. Now, I don't believe that Peter is saying that this is true of these believers here. But he's warning them against hypocritical love. And he's reminding them that when we were regenerated by God, one of the results of that regeneration is that we would have love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you want to know how you can tell if someone is truly saved? 
see if they love the church. See if they love the church. If they don't love the church, they don't love God. If they don't love God's people, they don't love God. And Peter is warning them here against this hypocritical kind of love and reminding them, you need to have a love for brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, that's the goal of your purification. That's the goal of your regeneration. God saves you. Not just to give you eternal life. Yes, you do get eternal life. But until that eternal life comes, God saved you so that you would go and live life amongst brothers and sisters in Christ and love them. Care for them. You went from loving self and the world to loving God and His people. That's what happens at regeneration. And it's true of all genuine believers. There is a genuine love for believers that all true believers have. In fact, 1 John 4.20 says this, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If you claim to love God and yet hate the church, hate the believers who are in the church, God says you are a liar when you claim to love God. You cannot love God and hate His people. It's impossible. Those two don't mix. It's oil and water. They don't go together. You can't claim to love God and hate His people. It's not what a true believer does. A true believer has a genuine love for the brethren. In fact, love for the brethren is one of the signs that we have of being a true believer. John says again in 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. That's a test. If somebody's ever struggling with the assurance of their salvation, you can ask them this question. Do you love God's people? Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, does it mean like I have to wake up and go to church and, you know, do all that, meet with people and, you know, all that kind of stuff, be accountable to them? Yep, that's what that means. Well, I don't know. You know what you need to do then? Give them the gospel. That's the moment where your eyes should be open. Whoa, gospel time, gospel opportunity. But if they're struggling with the assurance of their salvation and you ask them, do you love God's people? Oh, yes, I do love God's people. Well, it's a sign that you're a believer. That you're a believer in Christ. You see, one of the ways that you can have assurance of your salvation is to ask, do I love God's people? 
The sign of an unbeliever is that they hate others. Listen to Titus 3.3. 3. It says this, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when Christ saved us, that hate was turned to love. To love. And specifically, love for brothers and sisters in Christ. And what kind of love is that? Peter says that it's a sincere love. Not a fake love, not a hypocritical love, but a genuine love of warmth and affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what true believers have. Now, look at the end of verse 22. Peter tells us, fervently love one another from the heart. Not only are we to have a sincere love, but notice he says they're a fervent love for one another. A fervent love. What does that mean? The Greek word for fervent is made up of two compound words. One word that means out and the other one that means to stretch. To stretch out. And it pictures something being stretched out and extended to its limit. It's like a, like a rubber band that's stretched as far as you can. As far as you can stretch it before it snaps. And what this word is talking about here is not the emotional warmth of love, but the intensity of agape love. The intensity of our sacrificial love. And this means that this love is to be a constant An earnest love. To go all out with your love. We are to go all out with our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. One commentator describes this word using a muscle. It's as if you stretch that muscle to its limit as a runner would do in a race. A runner, as soon as that gun goes off, they stretch those muscles to its limit. They exceed and they go as far as they can with everything that they have inside of them, with every muscle that's in them. They exert it all and they go. That's the picture. They give it all they have. They use it all up and they push their bodies to their limit. And what Peter is talking about is that that is how our love is to be for one another. All out. Fervent. It's a love that will go all out for our brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, in chapter 4 and verse 8, Peter says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. That all out love will not always be looking for the sin in brothers and sisters and holding grudges against them in bitterness and anger. But this is a love that will overlook sin out of love for them. This is a love that looks past all of that and covers that sin with love. Notice this, this word fervently implies that love is not something that comes natural to us. But this is something that we have to work at. 
Something that we have to make up in our mind and choose and decide to do. To work it all out. We have to make the choice to be fervent in our love. To put forth the work to love one another. It takes work. Right? We can say that we love our spouse all day long. But unless we show it by the things that we do, it's nothing but a lie. Right? We have to put in the work. We have to put in the effort. Okay, you say that you love me, but... Do you show it by your actions? That's how you show your love. Fervent love. And he says that's how it's to be within the body of Christ. We are to have that fervent kind of love for one another. Not just going up to a brother or sister in Christ and saying, oh, oh, I love you. Oh, you have a need? Oh, well, I hope somebody meets that. No, we do all that we can to meet their need. Because we love them. Do you remember in the book of Acts when Peter was in jail? The church was praying for him. Listen to what it says those people in the church were doing. In Acts chapter 12 and verse 5, it says this, So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. The church got together out of a heart of love for Peter and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed fervently. They exhorted the energy to pray for him. This wasn't just a mealtime prayer. Oh, thank you, Lord, for this food. Oh, by the way, please be with Peter as he's in prison. No, this was a fervent prayer as the church got together and said, we need to pray for our brother. And we're going to pray and we're going to pray and we're going to pray and we're going to pray. And what did God do? He answered that prayer. This was strenuous prayer. They poured out maximum effort to pray for Peter. That word fervently also describes our Lord's prayer in the garden. In Luke twenty two forty four, it says, And being in agony, he was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. What were the other disciples in the garden doing while Jesus was praying fervently? They were asleep. No fervent praying going on with those guys. They fell asleep. But our Lord was praying fervently. And Peter tells us here that that is what our love for one another is to be like. It's to be at full capacity. It's a sacrificial kind of love that is willing to give it all for our brethren. And where is that love to come from? Notice what Peter tells us here. He says, from the heart. The end of verse 22, from the heart. The heart is the center and the source of the whole inner life of man. Jesus said, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The heart. What is he saying there? Whatever is there in your heart will come out. Whatever is in your heart, it will come out and it will be shown for all to see. 
And when we have love for our brothers and sisters in Christ in our heart, it will be seen by all those around us. And listen, this means that not only is it to be seen by by our fellow brothers and sisters in the church, but that love will be put on display for the watching world to see as well. And what does this do? It tells the world we're not like them. We don't live for self. They all live for self. We're not like them. We're different from them. We obey our Lord and our Master and we do what He commands us to do. And He commands us to love one another. Oh, and we love each other here. We love. We take care of our own. We don't leave our own out on the streets to fend for themselves. We care for them. We don't see a need that needs to be met by our brothers and sisters and turn a a blind eye. No, we meet their needs. Why? Because we love them. Because we love each other. We love them from the heart with a, a fervent love. In fact, isn't that what Jesus said about how the watching world will know that we are his disciples? Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All men, the whole world, they'll know because they're watching. And they'll know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That love that you have for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is proof to the world that you belong to Christ. And if we're not loving one another, then the world has every right to judge us and call us hypocrites when we claim to love Christ but don't love one another. They have every right. Because Jesus says, by this they'll know whether you're my disciple or not. But as Peter commands us here in our text, we are to love one another from the heart, from the innermost being. And so that's the manner of our love, that we love one another sincerely, that we love one another fervently, and we love one another from the heart. And then there's a third point. We saw the enablement of our love and the manner of our love. Point number three we'll call the recipients of our love. The recipients of our love. Notice again at the end of verse 22, fervently love one another. Now, We have to make this clear because I think that there are some people who don't understand what one another means. They don't understand it. One another does not mean one another in a general sense of all the people in the world. It's not what it means. One another does not mean your next door neighbor or your coworker. When the Bible speaks of one another, it speaks of brothers and sisters in Christ. It speaks of the church. The fellow redeemed. We've been go- going through a study on ecclesiology and equipping hour. And we've seen that, that the church is not made up of whoever decides to show up to church on a Sunday morning. 
not with the churches. The church is made up of believers in Christ. There are people that show up to our church who are not believers. We love them enough to share the truth with them and to point them to Christ. We love them enough to tell them that they are sinners who are in need of a Savior and that they must repent of their sin and put their faith in Christ. But they're not a part of the church. And they may even show up Sunday after Sunday. But they're not a part of the church. They're not a part of this one another group. But our brothers and sisters in Christ are a part of this one another group. Our obligation to our brothers and sisters in Christ is to love them fervently with a sincere love from the heart. Church, we're family. Look around. Brothers and sisters in Christ. We're family here. And we all have one what? Father. We all have one Father, which is exactly what Peter had told us back in verse 17. If you address as what? Father. And you do. I know that you do. Which means we're family. What are we called to do? We're called to love one another. Since God is our Father and we are all a part of His family, this is love that we are to have toward one another. Now, I'm not saying here that we don't love our neighbor or love our enemies. I'm not saying that. The Bible's clear, right? Jesus is clear. We're to love our neighbors and we are to love our enemies. But as the family of God, you and I are supposed to love the brethren. And that is what will draw the unbelieving world to Christ when they look and see how we love one another. John MacArthur says, It is much more important that we demonstrate love to one another than even that we demonstrate love to the outside world because it is the attraction and the love within the church that draws them to us. That affirms that we are Christ's. They're going to look at the love that we have for each other and they're going to go, There's something different about those people. I'm glad you noticed because we are different. Yeah, you guys are weird. You do some weird thing on Sunday mornings. What's going on there? Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you noticed. Now, come, let me tell you why we're so weird. Because we've been redeemed. Because we've been saved by our gracious and merciful Father. And we are now family. Brothers and sisters in Christ who are Commanded by our God, by our Father, to love each other. And you know what we do? We live that out. We love one another. We care for each other. We take care of our own. Because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you want to be a witness for Christ and show the world that you belong to Christ? Then love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how you can be a witness. 
What does that love look like? Listen to 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, does that mean I have to die for my fellow brethren? Not necessarily. It may mean that, as it did for the church in Alexandria during the plague. They died for each other, caring and loving one another. It doesn't necessarily mean, though, that we have to die for each other. John goes on in 1 John 3, 17. Listen to what he says. He says this, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. That's how we're called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, we made it through one verse. We saw the enablement of our love, the manner of our love, the recipients of our love. There's one more point, but we'll look at that next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, may we be encouraged this morning to love one another. May our love grow for each other as you've commanded us to love one another fervently, sincerely, from the heart. Lord, may we find joy in loving one another. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ who love me. The love that they have shown. Lord, it's such a joy and such a delight to be a part of a loving church. Lord, continue to grow us in that. Help us to continually be reminded of this truth, this command that you've given to us in your word that we are called to love one another. Lord, may we remember this when we see brothers and sisters who are in need that we would love them, meet their need, come alongside them, care for them, encourage them, suffer with them, and even rejoice with those who are rejoicing as you've commanded us to do in your word. Father, may this message that we've heard this morning impact our hearts and challenge us to daily remember that we have been called by you into the church to live as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that you are our Father. And we thank you that you have redeemed us and called us to be yours, that you have adopted us as your children so that we can call you Father. May we live our lives to bring glory and praise and honor to your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.